Welcome to Parallel Church. One church in five physical locations plus an online campus. So we welcome all of you who are joining us online, wherever you're watching from around the world. A special welcome to you guys. Welcome to our Tabor campus, our Claire's Home campus, our Okotoks campus, our Lloydminster campus. Welcome Lethbridge. Happy Thanksgiving. And we're going into a, a brand new series called Rethink. And to be honest, I'm a little nervous to dive into some of this stuff. Because um, it's it's, if it rattles you half as much as it rattles me, um, I'm going to hear about it. <laughs> <clears throat> How many of you have ever had something you, you believed for your entire life only to discover it wasn't true? Anything? How, how about this ad? Look at this ad. In 1919, this was literally believed. Can, can, you, can, you, can you imagine, can you imagine um, believing this? And then getting diagnosed with lung cancer and the doctor telling you what the reason why you've got lung cancer and you're like, no, smoking's good for me. Right? I mean, the shock, the anger. Well, I got one of those things that I got to confess this morning. And as I go into this, I want you to hear me out as I go through the entire process of this because I'm going to deconstruct something that God's been deconstructing in me. And I, I want you to hear me and, and, and make sure you don't jump to the conclusion before I get there. Okay? But I was, I once believed and was led to believe that the King James Version of the Bible was the only version. And I once believed that if it wasn't the only version, that it was the best version. And I once believed that it was a direct translation from, from Latin. Anybody else? Now you're all nervous. Because recently I, I came to understand. I, I, I've been studying history, as you know, um, a lot. But I came to understand how the King James Version came about in a little bit more detail. In particular, I was enlightened to the... The fact that King James himself gave the translators uh, 15 rules of translation, which in and of itself, 15 rules of translation, is, is nothing unusual. Every time a translation is out there, there's good standards and good rules to, to live by. These 15 rules were instituted and carried out by Richard Bancroft, the Bishop of London, in 1604. That, Pay attention to that date because that date's important. 1604, this is when this whole thing went about. And I thought, well, it's not unusual that there's 15 rules of translation. You know, some of the rules are common with all translations. Hey, let's be accurate. That's probably a good rule, right? But I, I, I was in particular bothered by four rules, specific rules that he gave. And rule number one, I'm going to share them with you. Rule number one was the ordinary Bible read in the church 
commonly called the Bishop's Bible, to be followed and as little altered as the truth from the original will permit. Now, this, is, this sounds good at the surface, that, hey, let's stay as close to the truth as we can. That's, that's like, okay, good, good rule. Except I was bothered by, wait, wait a second. The text to be followed wasn't the original manuscripts. It wasn't even the, the translation from Latin, which I was led to believe. The original manuscript to be followed in order for this translation to happen was the Bishop's Bible. So I had to kind of study a little bit more and go, what's the Bishop's Bible? The Bishop's Bible, to my surprise, was actually an English version that only the bishops could, could use. And there's specific things that were in the Bishop's Bible mandated by the, the Pope and by the leadership of, of the church, the Church of England, all, all of that were to be mandated. But this was the translation, the main translation to be used, which kind of was like, wait a second, that's not what I always thought. Rule number three, the second rule that bothered me is rule number three. The old ecclesiastical words to be kept, the word church, however, not to be translated congregation. Okay, hold up. Rule number one is let's stick to the, to the original as much as we possibly can. Then we get two rules later. Rule number three, except this word. Don't translate this word as congregation. Translate this word as church. That's pretty specific, especially because the word church that we have in our Bible, Jesus mentioned it three times. And it's mentioned more in the, in the, the letters of, of uh, Paul and, and Peter and, and, you know, the epistles and, and that. But I was like, it's very curious to me as to why King James is specifically saying, translate this word this way, not that way. That seems pretty directive, doesn't it? The third rule that bothered me, kind of caught my attention, is number six says no marginal notes at all to be affixed. I don't know about you. I'm kind of a Bible nerd. I like the marginal notes. Right? I like to do research and go deeper, and I like to know what this translation, what the original word was, and research a little bit deeper. But King James in particular says, hey, no marginal notes to be a fix, but only for the explanation of the Hebrew or Greek words, which cannot without some circumstance, that word, so briefly and, and fitly be expressed in the text. Okay. Which is interesting because one of the texts that they used was the Geneva Bible, which the Geneva Bible is, one, is the most popular English translation of, of the day. It was loaded with marginal notes. And King James says, yeah, don't use that. Interesting. The fourth rule that kind of caught my attention and bothered me a little bit was these translations, it's rule number 14 of his 15, these translations to be used when they agree better with the text than the Bishop's Bible, and he's basically authorizing, okay, you can use these translations if it agrees better than the Bishop's Bible. Tyndale's, Matthew's, Coverdale's, Whitchurch's, and Geneva. Which, by the way, he's now admitting that there's five other English translations already there. Which begs the question, 
Why did we need another one? Because I was led to believe, or I always thought or assumed that the King James Bible was translated into English so that we could have English Bible. Now listen to me carefully. Listen to me very, 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 very carefully. I am not saying to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and I am not saying I don't like the Bible, and I, I'm not saying I don't like the King James Version. In fact, I still use the King James Version to memorize because it is the most poetic, and I, and, and I love it. However, however, I was led to believe that it's an accurate translation, and I was shocked to believe, and it's accurate for the most part, but I was shocked to discover that there are specific changes, mandates made by King James himself in the translation. And the outcome of those changes and those mandates and those rules has directly affected me, kind of like believing that smoking is good for you has affected many people's lives and, and in, in a detrimental way. For 500, over 500 years, our belief of this, because the King James Bible, by the way, is the translation that most other translations use as the basis to translate? I get asked all the time, Pastor Kelly, what's your favorite version? I'll, I'll, the New American Standard Bible is, is, to me, is my favorite version because it is the only English translation that used the original three languages of Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic uh, to translate into English. It's the only direct. So there you go. I answered the question before you ask it, so it's good. But I'm not saying throw your Bible out, but I'm saying why? Why did King James have these mandates in particular? What was his motive, and how, does these, how did these mandates affect me today? And when he says, when he lists these other translations, it's interesting because the one name that jumped out to me is Tyndale's. Because William Tyndale... I've studied, I, I, I've studied his life, and in particular, I've studied his death. Tyndale was put to death by King Henry. He was um, killed at the stake by King Henry in 1536. This is 68 years later, we have King James doing the translation. It, what's interesting is that of the King James translation, 83% of the New Testament is Tyndale's translation. 76 of the Old Testament is Tyndale's translation. And yet Tyndale was put to death by King Henry because he tried to, in, to, one of the reasons why he was put to death, he was put to death as a heretic. And one of the reasons he was put to death as a heretic because he was, he was more nerdy than anyone. He insisted on translating from English, he insisted on translating the exact words. And in particular, one of the words that he tried to translate in particular is one that kind of stood out to me that King James actually made this statement of don't translate this word this way, translate it this way. He tried to translate the word church as congregation and was put to death for it 68 years later King James puts the same mandate out. Why? Why was this word so scary? And why were they so insistent on using church instead of congregation? Like, what's the deal? Brian uh, Moynihan, Moynihan uh, did a, a, a biography of Tyndale. 
And he answered that question, why, in his biography. He said this, to change these words, and in particular he's talking about to change this word to congregation, was to strip the church's hierarchy of its pretensions to be Christ's terrestrial representative and to award this honor to individual worshipers who made up each congregation. Hold up. Let me try, if you're not sure what he's saying, what he's saying is he's saying is that to translate the word properly to congregation would empower the congregation, in particular the individuals, and it would strip the organization, the church, of its power. When I studied the reason why King James had 15 rules and these four rules, do you know why King James stripped the, didn't want the marginal notes in his translation? Because the marginal notes, to his own admission, the marginal notes um, gave credence to a Jesus form of government within the church and stripped him of the Episcopal government or the, the church hierarchy government of its authority and of its way of government and in particular, this is what he was most concerned about. Do you know who the head of the Church of England was? King James. Do you know what he was scared of losing? His headship. His power. His control. Did you know the word bishop, by the way, was never in the original text? And yet it's inserted in the Bible. Did you know the word church was never in the original text? It was inserted in there. Why? Let me explain. In particular, this is the verse that got Tyndale killed. This is the verse that got King James to throw these mandates. And this is the verse that kind of throws, and this is, this is where I get a little bit worked up and angry because it's so entrenched in me, in us as Christians, for 500 years, it's been so accepted. This is why we're calling this series Deconstructing Modern Christianity. Because we got to deconstruct some of our concepts because it changes. When you start to, wait a second, understand what this is all about, you're going to begin to see a revelation and an authority and a power that you never accessed, that you never saw before. This is what Jesus said. At least this is what the Bibles, our Bibles, your Bible, my Bible says. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus talking, says, he's talking to Peter, says, I tell you, Peter, that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In this series, we're going to be focusing on this verse and we'll break it down a whole lot more because there's so much in this verse. It's crazy. But what I want to focus on is that word church is not what Jesus said. That word church is not the word he used. That word church was inserted into our Bibles by an insecure king who didn't want to lose his authority. What Jesus actually said is, I will build my ecclesia. I will build, and this is, this is the word, I'll put it up on the screen for you, ecclesia. It's a Greek word. Jesus used a Greek word. Now, this is what's fascinating about this word. It's fascinating about the word. It's a, it was a familiar secular term common to the Greek and Roman empires. 
In other words, it's curious, isn't it? Just let's think about this for a moment. Jesus, at this point, is a rabbi. He has followers. It's, it's pretty clear. I mean, Peter has just proclaimed, you're the one, you're the Messiah. It's pretty clear that they begin to understand who Jesus really was. And, and Jesus, in this revelation, doesn't say, I'm going to build my synagogue. He didn't say, I'm going to build my temple. He didn't even say, I'm going to build my network of synagogues. He said, I'm going to build my ecclesia. Ecclesia was, was a, a, a Greek, like I said, Roman common term. Do you know what it translates to? Look at this. This is what it means. It means a social political gathering of citizens who are called together to attend to the concerns of their city. Hold up. Hold up. Can you imagine how curious the disciples must have been when Jesus said, I'm going to, he chose that word? I'm going to build my ecclesia. What's interesting is that Jesus only used the word, what we understand as church or ecclesia, he only used it three times. And, and people are curious as to why. If, he, if this is what Jesus was doing, this is what he was building, why didn't he explain it? Because Jesus didn't have to explain it, what it was to them. Because as soon as he used that term, everybody knew what that term was, what it meant. It was a social political gathering of citizens who were called together to attend to the concerns of their city. Now, now let me explain the, the political part, just so that we don't go... An ecclesia, this is the term Jesus used. He didn't say that we're supposed to be social <laughs> political. But he, what Jesus used, this term, what it meant in the Greek terms and what it meant in the Roman terms is a little bit different from the Greek to the Romans, although they use the same word. But the, the, that term was used when they would be uh, what we would today call a city council, would gather together to take care of the concerns of their city. So Lethbridge City Council gets together, that would be an ecclesia. Take, you know, meeting together to, to discuss and the needs and to meet the needs of the city. That's what it meant. In Rome, it would, an ecclesia would, could include the Senate that would meet together to discuss the, the needs and the concerns of the empire. But break it down even further, this is what's amazing, break it down even further, ecclesia... In Jesus' terms, listen to the difference. Church, church means a gathering of Christians. This is a gathering of Christians in a, a building at a specific time led by who? A bishop or a clergy. And we've done this. For hundreds and hundreds of years. And Jesus didn't say, I'm going to build my buildings that meet a specific time in a specific place led by a clergy. He never said that. Yes, I'm putting my job at risk just by preaching this. But I'm passionate about this because I want you to understand something. Because if we get this right, we'll change the world.
Ecclesia was a buildingless mobile people movement designed to operate 24-7 in the marketplace for the purpose of having impact on everybody and everything. The Romans, listen to this, I, I was like, <gasps> the Romans would call Ecclesia this. They called it a conventus civium Romanorum. That's understandable. Listen, 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 listen. They would call it convenience for, for short, a convening. For short. And do you know what this term, convenus civium romarium, meant? It meant that wherever two or three Romans were together, that they could speak with the authority of the emperor and enact the power of Rome. An ecclesia. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Not wherever two or three hundred gather in my name with the, at a certain time, at a certain place, led by one man. I, no, no, no. I, if wherever two or three are gathered in my name, wherever, anywhere. Wherever, there I am in the midst. You see, this is, the Romans understood this to such a degree that remember when, when Paul got arrested in Acts chapter 22? He got arrested, the Jews, you know, rioted, and they hauled him off to prison. And the centurion, you know, it, you know is booking him basically in. And, and, and this is what it says in verse 29. Those who are about to interrogate Paul withdrew immediately. Why? Because you know what Paul said while he's being hauled off to prison? He's like, he, he looks at the centurion who's arresting him and goes, by the way, I'm a Roman. And they, what happens is immediately, they, it's just saying that, they withdrew immediately. And then it says, the commander himself was what? Alarmed. Alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. What would that matter? Except where two or three Romans gather together, there they have the power and the authority of the emperor and the power of Rome. Now watch. Watch, 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 watch. Who arrested Paul? It was a group of, a crowd, a massive crowd of Jews. And the centurion was alarmed because he realized that just two of us, himself and Paul, had more authority. They had the power of the emperor. They had more authority than the massive crowd outside. And they're like, okay. And, they, and he let them go. Come, come on, you, you got to get that. Come on, church. We don't just have the power in here. <laughs> God's anointing doesn't just happen in here at a specific time of the week. Only when Pastor Kelly preaches. Only when we sing a few songs. Only when we do our prayer time. Mm, come, mm-mm. Mm-mm, 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 mm-mm. Jesus didn't say, I will build my temple. He said, I will build my ecclesia. 
Now watch. This is what made me so upset. Is because I have been, I've told you this last week, I have been craving the fruit of the early church and wondering why we're not seeing. Because the Bible promises that in the last days, there's going to be move, a movement of greater power than of the former. And I'm going, we are far from even equaling the former power of what we see in the book of Acts. And Jesus said this himself, by their fruit you will know. So I'm asking the question, if we're not seeing the same fruit, we must, believing, must be believing something different. Or doing something different. And I want to, I'm chasing back to some of the sources because I've been chasing back. Where did we get off track? Where did we, and there's much more than just King James, but I'm looking at that and I'm going, it has been a preconceived thought, an idea that's been in my head, in our head, and I've done it. We're sitting in rows right now at a specific time in a specific place and we're calling this church and all the rest of it. And we've done it, we've enacted it because this is all we've known for hundreds of years. But we have limited the power of God to a one hour a week in a meeting, in a building led by a pastor. Come on. And Jesus didn't say that. And the early church didn't believe that. Because they didn't have the translation yet. Look at this, Acts chapter 2. The early church, this is their fruit. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone, not, not just those inside the church meeting, Everyone was filled with awe at the many, not just a few, many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Next verse. All the believers were together. Not just one denomination, not just 15 denominations, not just one gathering. All the believers in a city were together and had everything in common. They sold property and positions to give to anyone who had need. And I always looked at this verse, and I looked at it with awe, and I was like, what kind of crazy faith do these people have? Except for they were following the mandate of Jesus, and the mandate of Jesus is, I will build my social, political gathering of citizens, meeting together to meet what? The concerns of the city. And they looked at this and they took so highly, they thought so highly of meeting the concerns of the city that they were willing to personally sacrifice to give to anyone who had need. Wow. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Every day, not just once a week, every day. So listen, they still had large gatherings. Please come back next week. We're going to continue this. We're going to continue this. We're gonna, we're just, they still had large gatherings. Why? We'll, we'll get to that. Why they met together in large gatherings. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They actually liked one another. Come on. Praising God, enjoying the favor of how many people? Just of the people that voted right with them, just of the people that they agreed with, just of the people. No, no, they enjoyed favor with who? All. Why? It wasn't the... We're going to see this in this. Uh, there's so much to teach you in the next number of weeks. <laughs> You'd be shocked at who came to defense 
of Paul and the disciples. You'd be shocked. The people who were threatened and persecuted them were the synagogues who met at a certain time, certain place led by somebody who was afraid of losing their control. The ones who got put to death, William Tyndale, were the ones who started to threaten. <laughs> Come on. They had favor with all the people. Why? Because they were a social political gathering on purpose of meeting together, meeting the needs of their community. Well, no wonder they had favor. You're fixing my problems. Come on. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Fruit. Fruit. That's impressive fruit. But you know what's even more impressive? Look at this verse in Acts 19. I literally dropped my pen. Just in shock, stood back and went, whoa. This went on for two years. We'll explain in next week what went on for two years. But this went on for two years so that all the Greeks and Jews who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. <clears throat> I looked at that and went, all? Without social media? Without the internet? Without modern transportation? In two years, all of Asia? Oh, we're doing this wrong. Come on. Because not all of Lethbridge has heard. Huh? I look at this and went, oh, we, we're misunderstanding some things. <laughs> and this is, on, this is on me. This is me deconstructing in front of you. Like, this is on me going, wait a second, wait a second. What, what are we missing? What are we missing? We're missing something. And I think it starts with this whole idea that has been so ingrained. It's not your fault. It's not my fault. And we say, we, you know, and I'm not wanting you to distrust the Bible, not at all. But I just want, because we're going to go, we're, we're anchored on the teachings of Jesus without question. But when I find that... <laughs> One word or one thing has been changed for the purpose of somebody's insecurity, and that's been infecting us for 500 years. I'm bothered by that. What did Jesus? I want to know what did Jesus really say? Because what he's really building, I want to be a part of what he's building. Not what man's trying to build, not what man's trying to control. What Jesus is building. Because I want this result. I want this fruit. That's pretty big. That's pretty big. And it's possible. It's possible. So today's takeaway is simply this. I think we need to think bigger. That that's possible. And I think we need to grow smaller. And what I mean by grow smaller is we continue to grow. But I think we need to grow smaller in our understanding of where the power is. And the disciples understood it because when he said ecclesia, he said we're two or three. Is there another believer at your workplace? 
two or three have the power to change the atmosphere? Is there another believer in your neighborhood? Two or three have the power to change the status of your neighborhood. Two or three. I think we need to grow smaller. That's why we're pushing, like, come on, get into small groups, connected, because there's power there. That's not just an, that's not a sidebar. That is ecclesia. That's where we got to go. I'm going to terrify our board, but I had a conversation this week with some of our staff, and I said, if we have to sell buildings to get this, we're going to sell buildings to get this. Because I want it Jesus' way. Come on. Imagine what would happen if we began to rethink our definition of church. And what if we saw ourselves as ecclesias? An assembly of two or three called to attend to the concerns of our city. And next week, we're going to begin to deconstruct our understanding of the word minister and what that means and who is one. Because I think it spawns out of what we just learned. If you're upset by this message, you can email me at ralph at parallelchurch.com. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> God, I pray that the Lord help us to see it your way, to do it your way. Lord, we're, we're here humbly before you just saying, we want to hear your voice and not the voice of another. Teach us, Lord. And Lord, I thank you that you promised that your word would be followed by signs and wonders. And I pray, Father, for everyone who needs a miracle, they'll see it in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning and you're not yet believer in Jesus it's probably because we've modeled a governmental us versus them system of right and wrong and, and we haven't modeled this two or three small gatherings ecclesia relationship with Jesus quite right and you're, pro you're right, can I just say this? You're right in resisting wanting to join church. Because that's not what Jesus was building. He was building ecclesias. And I want to encourage you, don't let our misrepresentation of Jesus hinder you from what's pulling on your heart right now. And that's a relationship with him. And all you need to do to begin a relationship with Jesus is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is God and believe in your heart that he rose again from the dead and you'll be saved. That's, Paul said that in Romans 10. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer right now. It's so powerful. If you pray this prayer right now, you're joining the ecclesia. You're joining his family.
you're beginning a relationship with him. Let's pray this together. Everyone repeat this after me. If you're watching online, pray with me. Dear Jesus, I confess that you are God. And I believe that you rose again from the dead. And I ask you right now to become my God, my Lord and Savior, and my friend. Thank you for forgiving me of all my sins and for accepting me just as I am. I give my heart to you. In Jesus' name, amen.